Well, thank you all. We are going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and uh, we're going to do a couple different approaches today. One of them you're used to, and that's walking through the content of the chapter uh, and seeing where God would have us apply that to our lives. And then the other thing I'd like to do today, which is a little bit unique, is kind of give you a, a model of how to have a, a quiet time, or when you're thinking through a, a daily fellowship time with the Father, uh, I'd like to give you basically just one model of how you might do that, and we're going to actually kind of do that together today. And so uh, my encouragement is if we can pick a, a, a chapter of the Bible, pick a book of the Bible you'd like to go through, and my desire is for us to read at a minimum one chapter a day and then pray about that chapter. And so what's typically helpful is if you can discover some context of the book that you're choosing, uh, we're going to choose Ecclesiastes because that's the series we're going through, so it makes sense, right? Uh, but if you can get some context of what the author's intent is and who he's writing to, that's where you might have to do a little bit of research on the book, uh, and then just start uh, working through that um, book of the Bible chapter by chapter. And so when we look into Ecclesiastes, uh, one author summarized this book this way. We are to fear God in order to turn a vain and empty life into a life of meaning which we can enjoy with God as well as his gifts. See, in the midst of all the hard truths and the awful troubles in this fallen world, those who come to the Lord with trembling trust are given his grace to enjoy the gifts and in some ways surprisingly enter contentment and joy. Uh, my understanding, as we've talked as a leadership team, as we walked through this book, one of the things that is evident to me is if you take God out of the picture, life is hard, uh, life is broken, uh, it has uh, tremendous trials, and in that vein, it turns to, to vanity, or uh, we've talked about fading smoke. Uh, the purpose is lost, so then nothing has meaning. It's all, it's all temporal. Or one of the, the analogies that stuck in my mind is like cotton candy. As soon as it's in your mouth, it's sweet, but then it vanishes and disappears. Uh, but with God in the picture, when we yet God, any situation but yet God, we enter him into the picture, and life still can be hard, it still can be broken, and it still actually at times can be very confusing. However, when we see the faithfulness of God, the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, all of a sudden, we have hope in the midst of the confusion or in the midst of the trial, like Julie just shared, where to me, now we have purpose and meaning in every situation and in every moment, uh, and those times where we don't understand the purpose and meaning, we can rest out of fear of God. And so those are some of the takeaways I've had when we look at this book in context or as a whole, and I'm looking for some themes uh, that we can grab onto. Uh, so with that, let's, let's jump right in to the content of chapter 8. And so most of these are going to be on your screen for you. Uh, if for you kind of performer perfectionists out there, we're also going to be in Matthew chapter 13 if you want to put a, uh, a thumb in that, because that's the only one we're not going to put on the screen for you. I got your back. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1 says this, Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of things? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. So one of the themes I get from this is you can't understand everything, that you're not God. Uh, it's a reminder of our place in creation. It, it puts me in a posture of humility and, and dependence. And then when it's talking about wisdom, making your face shine and changing the hardness of it, I, I think that's a poetic way of saying that um, wisdom and understanding can turn all is vanity 
into count it all joy. Or in this world you have trouble, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So pursuing wisdom and understanding, we might not get to the end of it, but it adds joy, it adds comfort into um, some moments of life that really do feel vain. Uh, Verse 2 says this, Keep the king's commands because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? So again, one of the, the, my encouragements as you're reading through scripture, there's not every verse is going to make sense to you. Uh, there's portions that don't make sense uh, to us. But if you look for the themes and say, what's the main message here? Uh, a lot of times, other pieces of Scripture in different places of the Bible, as you engage more and more in God's Word, will kind of come to your mind and kind of solidify maybe your hypothesis of what that means. And, and, in, and you, you grab a bunch of those uh, same themes, and I think you start to discover the heart of God. So when I look through these couple verses, basically the message that I got was submit to the authority. Uh, keep the king's commands. Typically... I think Solomon's saying, typically it's in our best interest to follow the laws of the land. Uh, If you can, stay out of harm's way if possible. Now this could cause a ton of spark right now in our country, right? Uh, Because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so we are being asked to do all kinds of things. Some of them that you're in agreement with, some of them you may not be. And so I think Solomon is saying here, and as I look through other portions of scripture, that do what you can to kind of stay in line with the authorities placed over you. Romans 13, 1 and 2 came to my mind. It says, Be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. The chapter after that, Romans 14, Paul pivots a little bit, and he says, Keep God as your audience, and never act out of a weak moral conscience. So in one sentence, he's saying, look, the authorities placed over you have been placed there by a sovereign God. But we all know not all authorities are submitted to the lordship of God. So he goes on to say, don't, don't allow your submission to those authorities to usurp your submission to God. So he's given us a hierarchy that says, if it's underneath God first, I'll submit to whoever he's placed over me. Whether that's a, a father or a mother or a teacher or a coach or a president or a governor or a pastor... But when those things kind of rub up against what God has commanded in a very obvious way, he says, then I'm, I'm to submit to God and never to act out of a weak conscience that says, I'm not sure if this is actually right. So these are the things that we need help with, right? Because we have a ton of different opinions. Some of you are getting frustrated right now. Chill out. First uh, Peter 2.13 says, submit yourselves to the Lord's for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or as to one in authority, or to a governor sent by uh, him to punish evil and to praise those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. And then it pivots a little bit in verse 16. It says, act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, Love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor kings. So here you get the same kind of theme in another piece of scripture that says, honor those who are in authority over you, but recognize your freedom, and use your freedom in Christ to glorify him and love others. So to me, I think the theme here is recognize that I'm a bond slave of God first, 
and everything underneath that. And I think that will help us understand how to apply some of the rules that are placed over us that maybe we, we don't fully understand. So what do we do if we feel like a government or a king or a boss or a father is acting wicked? Uh, Solomon addresses this concern later on, which we'll talk about, by reminding us that God brings everything and everyone into account. It says this, Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not be lengthened like a shadow, in verse 13. Uh, I think that's a poetic way of saying that, that the day of justice is coming because God is just. Moving on to verse 5. So looking for themes in this portion. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's troubles lie heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell how it will be? Verse 8. No man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of the death, over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man's hurt. So when I read through this, this to me seems like something that's been grabbing a lot of the themes we've talked about through the rest of the book. So I'm not going to unpack a lot of that, but basically understanding that death is a teacher. We can't understand all times and epics and when things will come. Uh, but there, are, there is some wisdom and benefit gained from applying our hearts to knowledge by uh, reading God and pursuing uh, into his heart. And it also reminds us that, that wickedness, uh, it does not go well with. So let's keep going and we'll unpack a little bit more of this. In verse 10, it says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of men is fully set to do evil. Verse 12, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will not be well with those who, or that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. Verse 13, But it will not be well with those that are wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like shadow, because he does not fear God. So again, looking for themes here, one of the things that I gathered is fear God. Uh, trust that it will go well with those who fear God, and badly with those who don't. In order for this to feel true in life, I think you need to trust God's timing on these things, and we also need to start allowing God to define what go well means. Uh, this isn't a, a prosperity gospel that you're, you will avoid all trouble if you just read your Bible and pray every day. Um, in fact, I, I heard a quote this week that, that kind of stuck with me. It says, the grace of God frees me to suffer. The grace of God frees me to suffer. I was thinking about what that means, and I was also reading Ecclesiastes, uh, studying for this. And so I think part of the thing that that could mean is in order to, one definition of go well would mean if I have received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ by his grace, if he has given me a new identity and he has declared me worthy because he has placed his spirit within me, he has cleansed me, he has redeemed me, I've been reborn into his family. If that's who I am and that's where I look to get my worth and my value, then when I apply for a job and I get a no, it might go well with me, not that I get the job, but I can still have peace. If I don't know who I am, if I haven't been anchored in my identity in Christ Jesus, if I don't fear God and trust in his promises, and I experience rejection, or perhaps multiply that times three in one week, then that's going to rock me. 
And so I think part of what it means to go well is to have this inner peace anchored on the promises of God and what he's done in my life. Perhaps you struggle when a person has a bad opinion of you. Uh, well, to fear God, to place your trust in him, I think will allow you to, to afford that suffering. Or like, the grace frees me to suffer and it doesn't feel as much like suffering. Uh, I heard one time that one of the tricks to life is to make it look easy. And we know that life isn't easy, but I think when we are anchored in God, when we keep him as a big picture, there, there is a space that you can take hardships, not every day and not in every moment, but as a theme of your life, and you recognize and you can rest in the promises of God. So I believe that's partly what it means that it would go well with you. Uh, the second theme I grabbed from this portion of scripture is wisdom can deliver us from tragedy, verse 5. The wicked will not be delivered from their wickedness, verse 8. The wicked are buried and forgotten, verse 10. Justice will come to the wicked, and injustice, which we see all over the place, is temporary. So it's important to frame these in the promises, and I, again, I believe when you have that big picture in mind, it really does allow you or perhaps free you up to enjoy life. Many times when you're reading scripture, you get these themes, and then one message, one verse really sticks out at you. For me, one verse that has always been highlighted for me is verse 11. It says this, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. And so what I understand this to mean is there is evil all over the place. And if you're king, like Solomon, I'm sure part of what he's talking towards is when he sees evil, he needs to do something about it as one in authority. But I think more applicable for our lives and probably a better or safer starting point is to see the evil within our own desires, within our own selfish hearts, um, and do everything we can to execute a sentence against that quickly. The other portions of scripture that God brought to my mind when I was reading this is also from Solomon in the book of Proverbs. It says this in Proverbs 5.8, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. It's talking about an adulterous woman, which is a symbolic picture and a personified picture of sin. Or Proverbs 4.14 says, Do not even enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. So my highlight here that I feel like the Holy Spirit was bringing before me is any time that I even sense forms of evil, any time that I even think I'm possibly walking of a path where perhaps I'm, I'm over-irritated or I'm a little bit edgy and I'm quicker to anger, as soon as I recognize that, I need to do something about it. I need to execute a plan quickly against it. So what might that look like? Think of, think of temptations in your life. Again, whether it's uh, anger and explosiveness, uh, whether it's just irritability, perhaps it's jealousy, where as soon as you start to see the prosperity of others, or maybe you're on social media and you see the good life, and pretty soon you find yourself envying what you have and sliding away from contentment, it's so much easier to deal with those things right away, right when you recognize you're on the path and not even going near the door. And so my encouragement is have a plan. Uh, what are you going to do when you sense that? What are you going to say to yourself? Uh, what are you going to pray to God? What pieces of scripture do you need to hide in your hearts that you're going to continue to renew your mind towards? And then lastly, who are you going to call? Who are you going to invite into that? So as soon as temptation just, let, just begins to spark in your mind, you have someone you can call. You have something that you can 
focus on and say. You go to God in prayer. You have your verses or your songs, your action steps that takes a ton of courage because your flesh is going to want to keep going down the path. Uh, Another verse that popped to my mind, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be, in, you will be able to endure it. My experience in, in life, in, for myself and helping others, has generally been that, that plan to endure and to escape usually involves God's truth and his word, and it almost always involves other people. It almost always involves prayer. And so typically I think his way of escape happens at the beginning of temptation as opposed to once we've already fallen. But we know we have fallen and we do fall and we will fall again. And so also I think there is when I'm aware of the evil. Going back to the, the verse that stuck out to me, uh, execute a sentence against evil quickly. So what am I going to do when I do fall? What are you going to do when you fall? What's your plan then? What's your plan of confession? What's your plan of repentance? Uh, I think very similarly, it's apologize to who I've hurt. It's confess to God and to a trusted friend. When we have a plan going into these things, I think we will see ourselves uh, much, much quicker at executing that because it becomes a habit. It becomes a theme of our life that, yes, we still fall. Yes, we still sin. Yes, we still deal with our, our selfish flesh. Uh, but now we have a way to combat it in a quick way that it doesn't lead to slavery of our sin. But again, like Scripture says, it will provide a way of escape. Genesis 4, 7 says, Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. I think this is how that's applied in my life. Uh, verse 14 says this, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Verse 15, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. All right, what sticks out at you? What is the theme here? Uh, one thing that we see pretty quickly is that sometimes bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people, and how do we make sense of that? Uh, part of the answer is we don't in and of itself uh, in this life. But again, looking at the big theme, what do we discover? God is just, God is good, God is perfect, God is sovereign. So perhaps I just need to wait for his time. Perhaps I just need to trust in his promises. Uh, the other thing that stuck out to me is be joyful. There's nothing better for a man to do than to eat and drink and be joyful. Um, again, I think this is only possible when we see the big picture and the promises of God, an eternal perspective that God will reward faithfulness and God will give judgment and account on sin. Uh, I want to turn, if you will, again, this is the Matthew 13. Uh, this really helped me unpack this. I'm just going to read this. I'm going to read this out of the Message Bible. It's a little uh, story form. Uh, Matthew 13, verses 24. Listen to this. And how can we count it joy? How can we be joyful in the midst of a world, as Ecclesiastes has continued to show us, that has heartache and injustices on the surface? Jesus told another story. God's kingdom is like a farmer who planted a good seed in his field. That night, while his hired men were asleep, his enemies sowed thistles all along the wheat and slipped away before dawn. 
when the first green shoots appeared and the grain began to form, the thistles showed up too. The farmhands came to the farmer and said, Master, that was clean seed that you planted, wasn't it? Where did these thistles come from? And he answered, Some enemy did this. The farmhands asked, Should we weed out the thistles? And he said, No, if you weed the thistles, you'll pull up the wheat too. Let them grow together until harvest time. Then I'll instruct the harvesters to pull up the thistles and tie them in bundles for the fire. Then gather the wheat and put it in the barn. So when you think about injustices and good and evil coexisting at the same time, and so often we want God to execute judgment immediately. And when I read this parable, I recognize for God to be fully just um, at the moment of injustice would mean none of us would exist. Uh, but he has a greater plan. He has a bigger plan. He has a plan that tolerates, even though I think it grieves his heart, the evil in order to redeem those which he has called to himself. Later on, his disciples aren't really sure what this means. And so in verse 36, Jesus goes on uh, to explain this. He says, Jesus dismissed the congregation and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the story of the thistles in the field. So he explained, the farmer who sows the pure seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The pure seeds are subject of the king, subjects of the kingdom. The thistles are subjects of the devil. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The curtain of history. The harvest hands are the angels. The picture of the thistle being pulled up and burned is a scene from the final act. The Son of Man will send his angels, weed out the thistles from his kingdom, pitch them into the trash and be done with them. They are going to be... They are going to complain to high heaven, but nobody's going to listen. At the same time, ripe, holy lives will mature and adorn in the kingdom of their Father. So again, as you read through Scripture and as you get more and more used to being in God's Word and He promises to hide these things in our heart, you'll read one portion of Scripture and it will recall to mind another portion. Or maybe it will lead you into another place. Or maybe a friend will guide you there. Or a sermon that you'll listen to will guide you there. And as we start to unpack the living Word of God, we begin to know the heart of God. And so it allows us to discern and interpret portions of Scripture more accurately instead of just taking one piece of poetry and trying to create an entire theology around it. All right, going forward. Verse 16 says, When I applied my heart, Solomon says, to know wisdom and to see the busyness that is done under the earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However, much man may toil in seeking it, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So Solomon finishes chapter 8 by saying, Man cannot know all of God's ways. You can seek it out, and God will allow you to know what you need to know, but many times no further. And I love the portion that says, though a wise man claims to know, he doesn't know. And so the other pieces of scripture that pop to my mind are that reiterate this. Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Acts 1, 7 and 8 said, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but, it, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Mark 13, 
the disciples are asking when certain things will take place, and Jesus says, no one knows but the Father. But you focus on being alert, staying awake, be on guard, don't be anxious. The Holy Spirit will move in you. See, it seems like every time we get caught up in needing to understand and know everything, the Holy Spirit, God's Word, or Jesus as on earth, he continually pointed us to our personal responsibility. He continually said, here's what you need, to, you need to be concerned upon, Nick. Guard your heart, trust in the Holy Spirit, and you do what I ask you to do. Uh, another place that this is pulled out is John uh, 21. 21, Peter is walking with Jesus, and uh, John is following them, and Jesus just gets done telling Peter that he's going to suffer some things. And he looks back and he says, well, what about John? And here's Jesus' response. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And so in Ecclesiastes, we get a very, very similar theme where there's all kinds of things we don't fully understand, but the, the wise preacher says that, I'll tell you what, you walk humbly before God, you fear him, and you do as he asks you to do, and it will go well with you in the big picture. Okay, so if we look back at chapter 8 and we think, what have we learned? What themes stuck out in your mind? Uh, submit to authority, fear God, pursue wisdom, but understand it has its limits. And when you reach its limits, trust that God has the answer and he can be trusted with the things that you don't know. Uh, when we humbly accept our position before God, we are in a place where we can receive and enjoy the gifts that he has given. And now those gifts don't have to become God's. We keep God there. But now we can enter into worship when we recognize that he is the giver of all good things. And in that, we can truly find contentment. We can find joy. We can find delight in this life. Um, those are the themes that stuck out to me. And so here's what I think it looks like to pray, and I'm going to ask you to pray with me after you read your chapter, after you ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate things into your heart. Uh, perhaps he'll anchor you down on one word or one verse. Perhaps he'll convict you there and say, boy, you need to spend some time with this. You need to unpack this with a friend because this is a theme in your life that you struggle with. Uh, then listen. But when you're done, pray. And so I'm going to ask you to pray with me just about what we read. Father God, we thank you for the enduring power of your word. We thank you that it does have the power to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus. I think through even our service today, how many times that uh, either Ben talked about Psalms 1, or David talked about Hebrews, or Julie shared scripture with us, or we sang scripture, and how powerful it is, and how great a message that we have to just continually go to your word. And so, God, I do pray that you would help us to submit to the authority placed over us, that we would not enter into anxiety or an unhealthy anger, uh, but we would keep you as the authority of our life. We would keep you as the definer of our worth. God, give us wisdom to trust you. Uh, give us faith to know that you are in control and that the whole world is yours. Uh, give us faith to hang on to your promise of justice, that we can trust that you will be our avenger, that we can hide ourselves in you, that we can entrust ourselves to you in our suffering. Give us faith to believe that our suffering is temporary and that your eternal wards will last forever. God, when we do find things in our heart that are evil, when we find temptations that aren't in line with your ways, God, help us to act quickly against those. Help us to, to cut the heads off of those temptations, Father, that they might not take root in our heart. And when we do feel, God, I pray that you would give 
people listening a, a close and trusted friend who that they can explore the heart of God with, that they can confess their sin with, that they can know that they are forgiven, and they can turn and move further towards God and get on with their life. Father, we recognize and acknowledge that we don't understand all things, that we are not God, and we are totally dependent upon you. But we do praise you and thank you for bringing us into yourself, for bringing yourself into us, for giving us the opportunity to understand things of God. And so I pray that we would rest in that, that we would align our lives and our hearts and our minds and our desires with you. We praise you that you are faithful and that you will accomplish everything that you have promised in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.